This program has been approved for one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. This webcast has also been approved for ABIM Maintenance of Certification, MOC points, through the partnership between the ACCME and the ABIM. The following continuing medical education activity is the property of The Ohio State University. Duplication is prohibited by law. The Ohio State University is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, also known as ACCME. OSU Center for Continuing Medical Education designates this CME activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Each physician should claim only those credits that are actually spent on this CME activity. In keeping with the essential standards of the ACCME, planning committee members and participating faculty have been asked to disclose any relationship with commercial entities, discussion of commercial products, services, or unapproved off-label usage of commercial products or devices. Specific disclosure information can be obtained by contacting the Center for Continuing Medical Education at ccme.osu.edu. The information presented in this CME activity is meant for educational purposes only. Physicians' own judgment must remain central in the selection of the therapy options for their patients' specific medical conditions. The following is supported in part by the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. Emotional Support Animals. That's today's presentation with the following distinguished faculty from the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. And now, our medical editor and moderator, Dr. Jing Jing Mao. Up to two-thirds of American households own a pet, and that percentage has been increasing over the past few decades. During the COVID-19 pandemic, for example, many households acquired new pets. You've probably heard of the term fur baby. A great many pet owners consider their animals members of their family. And it's widely been touted that pet ownership increases happiness and longevity, though the studies have been a little mixed on this. In the past decade, we've seen a rise of emotional support animals, or ESAs. This has been a very controversial topic, because while many ESAs are legitimate, there's increasing concern about fraud. Landlords and airlines have complained that people are calling their pets emotional support animals to skirt fees and regulations that might restrict their pets' presences. Airlines, for example, have experienced a number of animal-related incidents, including allergic reactions, bites, hygiene concerns from animal waste. And as a result, in March of 2021, the U.S. Department of Transportation no longer requires airlines to accept emotional support animals on board. So what exactly constitutes an emotional support animal? What are the considerations for us as medical professionals in evaluating patients for an ESA? To elaborate on this topic, I've invited a psychiatry expert from the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center. Dr. Mira Menon is an assistant professor of psychiatry and behavioral health. Mira, welcome to MedNet. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate being here and being able to talk to you all about this important topic. 
Awesome. So who all can write for an ESA? Really great question. So really any clinician can write for an emotional support animal letter. Mm -hmm. um, we'll talk today about the um, different considerations that one might, might have when writing a letter, mm -hmm. but um, really therapists can write for it. Um, any physician can write for it. And um, even mid-level practitioners can, can, nurse practitioners and physician's assistants can write for this as well. Okay. Um, but with that in mind, um, one other thing we'll talk about today is how it's important to be aware of, um, you know, your licensing body restrictions and, and whatnot. So, for example, at this point in the state of Ohio, um, the um, the Board of Social Work does rec strongly recommend, maybe require that additional training is done by the social worker prior to writing these letters. Mm. So mm -hmm. good to be aware of some of these things before writing them. Okay, that's really mm -hmm. helpful. Thank you so much. Now, if you haven't already, please check out our website at go.osu.edu slash mednet21. You can find all 120 of our webcasts there along with the slides and instructions to receive your CME credit and ABIM MOC points. You can also listen to our programs by podcasts. Search for OSU MedNet 21 on your podcast app. If you have any questions about any of our programs, please send those to us using the Ask a Question feature on the bottom of the webcast. Now let's get started. Mira. Great. Well, yeah, excited to get started. So today we're going to be talking about emotional support animals, what clinicians need to know. Um, so I'm a psychiatrist here at um, the Ohio State University Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Health, um, and I specialize in working with young adults. Um, I've spent a lot of years specifically working with the college population. So. Um, when I was starting to, um, especially at the start of my practice, I started to get a lot of requests for emotional support animal letters. And um, at that time, I didn't know anything about it. And I was really wondering, like, should I write these letters? Um, and also some of my patients were living in dorms. So I was wondering about the ethics of, of uh, writing a letter for someone living in you know, kind of close, close community housing. Um, so in the last few years, I connected with um, some other psychiatrists through the American Psychiatric Association, um, who are also really interested in this topic in order to produce um, some practice guidelines surrounding this for psychiatrists. So even though a lot of my research surrounding this is, is specific to psychiatric practice, um, because um, these emotional support animals are for psychiatric disabilities, um, I really think the recommendations are applicable for really people from any background, even if you're not a psychiatric physician. So today, um, by the end of today's presentation, I am hoping that all of you in attendance will be able to describe the relevant federal, state, and some local laws surrounding use of emotional support animals, as well as be able to explore and have some understanding of the evidence base for the use of emotional support animals. Um, we're also gonna talk about the process for conducting an emotional support animal evaluation and uh, what are the different ethical considerations that you need to weigh. Um, and I know a lot of us worry about liability in our clinical practices, so we're going to talk about some of the liability concerns, go through some court cases that have occurred related to ESAs, and discuss strategies to reduce liability. I don't have any financial or non-financial disclosures. And one thing that I, I kind of highlighted already, so my presentation is adapted from um, our American Psychiatric Association workbook 
work group on emotional support animals. And I'm gonna, at the end of today's presentation, provide you from research, with some resources about how to access that and some other further reading to help as you're um, kind of getting, getting deeper into this area of emotional support animals. So let's start by talking about definitions and terminology. An emotional support animal is an animal of any species that alleviates symptoms of a psychiatric disability through the animal's companionship or presence. So that's the definition of an ESA. But let's compare it to other types of assistance animals. So you'll see on the left-hand column um, five different types of animals. The first four are in that category of, of assistance animals. So we have psychiatric, or sorry, service animals, psychiatric service animals, emotional support animals, therapy animals, and pets. So for our purposes, just to kind of clear it up, you'll see that service animals and psychiatric service animals, they're basically about the same. Really the only difference is, is the nature of the disability. Psychiatric service animals are um, service animals for individuals with a psychiatric disability, whereas service animals are non-psychiatric disabilities. So for example, you, I think the type of service animal that most of us are, more, are most familiar with is a seeing eye dog. Um, so talking about the different types of species that um, you know, the law um, kind of outlines for these different types of assistance animals. So for service animals and psychiatric service animals, the species of that assistance animal must be a dog and in some cases, a mini horse, which I know is, is very adorable, right? Um, for the other types of animals, it really can be an animal of any species. Um, there are some specific nuances to that that I'll mention later, but um, really no limitation, especially when it comes to emotional support animals on what that animal can be. So when it comes to who is helped by this, so the, the first three rows, the so service animals, psychiatric service animals, and su emotional support animals, these are all kind of similar. So the individual who is helped by these assistance animals must have some sort of disability. Um, for psychiatric service animals and emotional support animals, the disability is a specific psychiatric disability. And as we might know, so the, the, um, you know, the definition of a disability according to the Americans with Disabilities Act is when you know, the issue um, causes significant impairment in one or more areas of an individual's life. So that's the standard that we're thinking of. And we'll talk even more about that as, you know, as the presentation progresses. Um, the um, therapy animals and pets, that all kind of varies in terms of who is helped. Um, with a therapy animal, I think the t examples that we think of the most are, um, uh, for example, um, you know, in my in my work with college students, a lot of times during finals week, the university will contract with someone with a therapy animal to have dogs on campus so that people can, you know, go to the student union and snuggle with the dogs and, and gain comfort from that. Um, hospitals do the same. Now, if you were to have a therapy animal, you can't just go places and you know, bring your therapy animal and, and conduct an event. You have to be, have an agreement set up with, um, with the location that you're going to to make sure that it's well within their, their rules. Therapy animals can also be used in clinical settings. Some psychiatrists and therapists will have a therapy animal to assist with, with therapy. 
And um, this can be helpful for providing comfort in the session and then also using the, um, the animal to help with a therapeutic intervention. Um, one example of a, that a friend of mine has told me about in her clinical practice with her therapy dog is um, using her therapy dog to help with assertiveness skills. So when the patient who has difficulty with um, assertiveness um, comes into her office, they might practice like calling for the dog or asking for the dog to, to come closer to them. So that's an example there. In terms of training required, um, service animals and psychiatric service animals do require training um, and they're individually trained to assist one person and they're trained to do a specific task. So I know I already mentioned with service animals, the seeing eye dog example. Another example would be a, a service dog who can, um, for example, uh, detect if uh, an individual with diabetes has very low blood sugar and is trained to nudge that person or even um, grab that person's glucagon and bring that to the patient, the owner of the service animal. When it comes to psychiatric service animals, some of those tasks might be um, is kind of similar. So for example, if a patient um, has, has a panic disorder and has frequent panic attacks, a psychiatric service animal might be able to detect the onset of the panic attack and alert the patient so that they can do appropriate coping skills to mitigate that panic attack or they might be trained to apply pressure when that patient is having a panic attack or detect the onset of a non-epileptic seizure before it happens. Um, another example includes bringing a patient their medications to them. So service animals, they're trained and they're trained to do specific tasks. Emotional support animals do not require any specific training and um, their role is really more that of comfort um, and I know that does feel like in some ways a task, but if you kind of think about the different examples, bringing someone their medication is kind of like a next level sort of task as compared to like snuggles. Um, therapy animals and their handlers do require training. There are a bunch of different organizations across the U.S. who can provide this, this training. And this is um, typically in obedience and socialization. And pets, I know a lot of us will, you know, have our pets go through different types of training, but that's not necessarily like a legal um, or like otherwise like any sort of requirement. Now let's talk about, um, you know, some of these different tasks and the way in, in, and also the ways in which it mitigates an individual's disability. And some of this we already kind of talked about. So, um, you know, as I said before, the service animal and the psychiatric service animal will perform a specific task emotional support animals, therapy animals, and pets do not perform specific tasks. They will provide emotional comfort or well-being or support, um, but they're not um, medically necessary in order to intervene when someone is um, experiencing their psychiatric disability. Now, do, in what ways do these mitigate an individual's disability? So for the first three, service animal, psychiatric service animal, emotional support animal, the role of these assistance animals is to mitigate a specific disability. But um, for therapy animals and pets, that's not the specific role. Um, therapy animals are used to um, in therapeutic settings, but they don't necessarily need to be used only with people with psychiatric disabilities.
so here's some different examples that I'm going to go through right now. Um, so for example, an individual with depression feels uh, comforted by their rat and is able to get out of bed due to needing to care for that rat. Now, is this an emotional support animal or a psychiatric service animal? So this is an example of an emotional support animal. Some hints are, for example, um, this in this case, the person has uh, a psychiatric disability. I suppose I was very vague about it, but for our, our purposes, we'll assume it's to the level of a disability. Um, and also another hint is that the animal is a rat. And we talked about how um, for it to be a service animal, um, it needs to be a dog or a miniature horse. And the, um, the task that's being provided is not a very specific task, but it's kind of this comfort or this, this helps me get out of bed in the morning sort of intervention. So another example is an individual with non-epileptic non seizure disorder has a dog that detects warning signs and alerts them prior to the onset of an episode. So this is an example of a psychiatric service animal. And you know the the parts of the of the case here. So the individual has a psych, uh, psychiatric disability, which is non-epileptic seizures. The animal is a dog, which we know um, is one of the two animals that can be used with um, as as a service animal. And then the dog is doing a specific task. It's able to detect the warning signs of that seizure and intervene so that the the patient can get themselves into a good position you know get their medications uh, make sure that they stay safe and the last one is an individual with schizophrenia has a miniature horse that's trained to bring their pill bottle to them thereby improving medication adherence so this is another example of a psychiatric service animal the individual has schizophrenia which in this example is we'll say is rising to the level of a disability the service animal is a miniature horse, and the specific task that's being done is bringing the medications to them. And these are all, um, you know, examples that I've heard, you know, through colleagues or through my own work of, um, you know, of, you know, the role of different uh, ESAs and psychiatric service animals. So um, I know it sounds kind of interesting to hear, but but these are all things that can kind of happen and be uses for these types of animals. So let's talk next about relevant federal, state, and local laws. So, um, so and, and these are all, I think, really helpful for our clinical practice because a lot of times, too, we, um, you know, we're thinking about not only are we able to um, provide this individual with an ESA letter, but what happens when that person brings their ESA into their appointment with them? What are the different rules and regulations surrounding that? Um, and I think I would, for the latter question, I would recommend as you know, your organization um, talk as a group and decide what are your policies if someone brings an animal in to um, your center. So um, when it comes to legal right to enter a public establishment, service animals and psychiatric service animals are protected by law when it comes to entering public establishments. And this regulation is through the Americans with Disabilities Act. On the other hand, emotional support animals, therapy animals, and pets, there's not specific laws that um, protect their rights to be in public establishments. 
Um, and we'll talk specifically about some of these individual laws. But emotional support animals, the laws right now largely surround housing, um, but not necessarily the right to enter a restaurant or um, you know, go into, with you into a medical setting. Now, when it comes to um, legal right to enter medical settings, service animals, psychiatric service animals, and therapy animals, they have rights to enter medical settings. When it comes to therapy animals, um, so for example, if, um, you know, if your hospital system wants to have a program where therapy dogs are kind of walking through and, and greeting patients, um, the therapy animal does have a right to be there. However, that needs to be agreed upon by your center. Um, if I had a, you know, a therapy animal that I was working with, I wouldn't be able to go to just any place and, and bring them in and hold a program. You need to have a specific outline for what that's gonna look like and, and uh, what are the rules and regulations surrounding that. So service animals and psychiatric service animals can also enter medical settings. Um, and I, I've highlighted with restrictions. And so what that includes is like, for example, like operating rooms, for example, um, you know, depending on the different rules and regulations, there are, you know, are likely rules against having them specifically within an operating room or, um, you know, certain areas where there needs to be like maintenance of sterile fields. Um, and on the last column, these are the specific laws, and we'll, we'll go into these a little bit more in the subsequent slides, but the federal law, the Americans with Disabilities Act, that's the one that's talking about the regulations for service animals. And then when it comes to emotional support animals, the important laws for this category are the Fair Housing Act, um, the Air Carrier Access Act, IDEA, which is like related to education, and we'll talk about that, as well as state and local laws. Therapy animals are regulated by state and local laws. And pets, you know, I, I think, you know, I have technically none listed, but depending on your area, there might be different state and local laws surrounding um, pet ownership too, which are, can be useful to look into. So going into this a little bit more, the Americans with Disabilities Act. So service animals are limited to dogs and in some cases, miniature horses. And it specifically states, a dog whose sole function is to provide comfort or emotional support does not qualify as a service animal under the Americans with Disabilities Act. So it has a specific line separating emotional support animals from service animals or psychiatric service animals. These are considered an extension of the owner and they can be asked to leave the premises if they're not housebroken. So an example I like to use is um, anything you would expect your patient to, the rules that you would expect your patients to follow in, in session, you would also expect that of, as the, of the animal. Um, for example, if your patient bit you, you would probably get security and ask them to leave. Same with the service animal. The service animal is trained, and so if the service animal, animal were to bite you, even though that they're there for the purposes of assisting someone with a disability, um, because they're supposed to be an extension of that patient, they can be asked to leave if they're not following those rules. And there are some questions that you can ask. Um, one, is this dog a service animal that is required for a disability? And two, what work or task has this dog been trained to perform? I think this piece is really important to talk to um, other members of your staff about as well. Um, if someone comes in with a service animal, 
you're not allowed to ask them to produce extensive paperwork. You're not allowed to ask them to um, have their animal demonstrate what the task is. Um, these are the only two questions that you're permitted to ask. Now, in a clinical setting, um, for our clinical work, we might ask some additional questions just to kind of help make sure that the service animal is helping um, with our patient's needs. But um, when it comes to access to a space, and especially when it comes to our different administrative and support staff, these are the only questions by law that they're allowed to ask a patient with a service animal. Um, and just to kind of clarify, um, kind of included in this is, is the paperwork. So you can't ask them for extensive paperwork about what the disability is and what the training is that that service animal has because it's considered dis discrimination and kind of an extra barrier for someone with a disability trying to gain access. The Fair Housing Act, so this kind of gives a, this kind of opened the door for emotional support animals, I would say. It prohibits discrimination in housing, including um, discrimination based on a disability. And it does have a category or a, a statement about um, emotional support animals um, in that it categorizes both service animals and emotional support animals as assistance animals that aren't pets. So it does permit those with an ESA to have reasonable accommodations. So this might include um, if an apartment complex does not allow certain species or does not allow pets at all, um, an individual with an emotional support animal um, and, a, and supporting documentation can waive those policies. It also waives pet deposit fees as well. Landlords are not entitled to get medical records for patients, but they can request supporting documentation. So again, kind of similar to the questions we can ask someone with a service animal. Um, landlords can kind of have like a, a brief letter, but they're not entitled to extensive information about um, the, the tenant's um, health history in order to support the documentation. The Air Carrier Access Act. So, um, you know, when this came out, I actually had a significant decrease in the amount of patients who uh, were asking for ESA letters. So um, this does prohibit airlines from discriminating against individuals on the basis of disability. Um, but in January 2021, this act evolved and, um, and what it said was that um, Airlines are no longer required to accommodate for ESAs and that airlines could make individual judgments and individual decisions about what, um, what they would permit in terms of ESAs. So this came out in January of 2021. And I really think by when I was looking at it, by February or March of that year, pretty much every airline had come up with a new policy against emotional support animals. Um, however, service animals, including psychiatric service animals, are still protected under the Air Carrier Access Act. So I think that's why I stopped getting as many letter requests because people weren't um, asking for these letters to help get their pets on, on board as much. The Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. So um, this talks about how those with disabilities are entitled to free appropriate public education and it protects use of a service animal, but does not necessarily protect for the use of an emotional support animal. So state and local laws, these are really important to keep track of as well because these are ever changing. And I think as, you know, as emotional support animals become more and more popular, these laws are just going to continue to evolve. And these are just some examples. I'd encourage you to look more about what's, um, you know, what's, what's the law in your area. But in California, for example, 
the clinician must be licensed in that state and have an established relationship with that patient for at least 30 days prior to providing that letter. In Florida, the clinician must have had at least one in-person appointment with that patient in order to provide that letter, um, which limits telehealth companies from providing these letters. And then in New York City, certain non-domesticated animals are um, not allowed to be ESAs, like raccoons, for example. Um, and one thing I mentioned before, it is really important too to know what your licensing body within your state also recommends for your for your you know area. Um, like I said, there's some um, there's some areas where some licensing bodies where they recommend people have clinicians have formalized training in writing letters of support for ESA prior to doing those letters. So what's the evidence? So we talked about the laws. Let's talk about what is the clinical evidence that, that we know of for emotional support animals. So right now, there's actually not much evidence out there that um, specifically supports the use of emotional support animals um, for a psychiatric disability. There are some studies out there, but um, they're usually pretty low power studies, not randomized controlled trials. Um, one, for example, included 11 subjects with severe mental illness, and those individuals did have a significant reduction in you know, various mental health symptoms like loneliness and like depression and anxiety. However, um, this specific study did not control for the other psychiatric treatments that they were undergoing at the time. Um, there is another study in progress through the VA that's examining the use of emotional support animals with veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder. So it will be interesting to see you know, what that says when it comes out. Um, and um, also to think about how does that apply, and it's within the vet veteran population, how can we um, apply that to other populations as well? There's a bit more evidence about service animals and pets um, and therapy animals, but even the evidence here is somewhat mixed. Um, there are studies that have shown benefit for service and therapy animals for PTSD, anxiety, dementia, autism spectrum disorder, schizophrenia, but um, again, it's mixed and a lot of these studies are not randomized controlled trials. They're small sample sizes um, and they don't produce like high enough power. There are some studies that exist that um, examine what's the impact on the animal. Um, one thing that I thought was interesting that I thought I'd point out, um, therapy animals, so those animals who are kind of like working animals and going into centers and providing support, they actually um, experience an increase in cortisol, so increase in the stress hormone. So I think that's like, you know, an interesting and important consideration that um, these sorts of assistance animals, they're on the job. And so, you know, this has an impact on them as well. And let's talk about pets. I know a lot of us have had pets before, have pets now, and you know really love our, our fur babies. Um, and um, it's you know they do have a lot of benefit. Um, again, you know a lot of these studies are mixed and underpowered, but you know there are some studies showing reduction in cardiovascular risk and improved physical and psychological well-being. Um, there is some thought that this could be related to increase in social support, um, social interaction with other people. Um, so even though there's not much evidence for the use of emotional support animals, it's possible that that evidence will be, you know, that supportive evidence will be coming down the line, um, especially based off of some of this preliminary evidence we have on service animals and therapy animals and pets. But we'll kind of have to stay tuned. 
So conducting an emotional support animal evaluation, should I get formal training? Um, so it would be really nice to get the formalized training, but unfortunately there's not that much out there. And a lot of the trainings that are available for clinicians are, um, they're, they're produced by like animal enthusiast companies. So there's a lot of bias in there as well. Um, so it's really no wonder that, you know, this one statistic, 36% of mental health providers feel underqualified to make an ESA determination. Um, and honestly, even after doing my extensive study, I think it has given me a lot of information, but I do still feel uncomfortable when a patient asks me because, you know, there's a lot of stuff that goes into this consideration. So, um, you can consider getting the training, but at the same time, it, it may not be so valuable. What I would recommend is looking at different organizations because a lot of different organizations have produced practice guidelines. For example, the American Psychiatric Association. And I'll be sure to talk about that again at the end of today's presentation so you know where to access that. There are two components of an ESA evaluation. Number one, does the patient have a chronic mental impairment due to a psychiatric condition defined by the Diagnostic Statistical Manual that's substantially limiting their function, for example, like a disability? And number two, will the ESA alleviate these impairments? So these are really important things to keep in mind when you are weighing whether or not a person meets criteria for an emotional support animal. And really, when we, should th we think about this, emotional support animal evaluations are disability evaluations because we do need to evaluate a person for whether or not they have a disability. What is a disability evaluation? So there's a lot of different parts of a disability evaluation, and especially when it comes to psychiatric disability, in order to uh, make sure that we're making a, a, a legitimate judgment. So um, they usually require um, specific questions in order to establish um, what the diagnosis is, what the level of impairment is, and um, what are the different parts of one's daily life that are being affected in, in the day-to-day. During this evaluation, it's really important to gather good information, including um, evaluating the patient, um, requesting records from outside sources, and maybe even considering getting collateral information from friends and family member um, in order to determine a specific course of action. Um, other examples um, that, um, you know, that we have used for um, disability evaluations or that, are, that you might think of when it comes to disability evaluations are workplace accommodations, healthcare benefits, employment status. So when evaluating for an ESA, um, approach that evaluation in a similar way that you would some of these other disability evaluations. And this slide talks about other types of disability evaluations that I won't go into, but, um, but really it's important to think about these evaluations along the same level. I, so this Youngren article is another really good article that talks about emotional support animals, and I really appreciate this quote from it. So disability does not mean the individual has an attachment to the ESA, feels happier in proximity to the ESA, or just wants to accompany the animal, which is usually their pet. It means that the person requires the presence of an animal in order to function or remain psychologically stable. So those are the things that we should keep in mind when evaluating. Other stuff to think about, um, 
it's important to think about, you know, if the person's having difficulty caring for themselves, are they able to care for the animal? That can be hard for us to know as clinicians, especially since, you know, we're not formally trained in, um, in you know, caring for animals or animal welfare, but it is something to consider. It's also really important to be aware of state-to-state -state variability in definitions and whether or not a clinician-patient relationship is required. Um, with those laws that I mentioned, um, there is variability from state to state. Some states require a patient-physician or a clinician relationship for six months. Um, like we mentioned in California, they require them for 30 days. Um, that's really essential to know when you're writing these letters to make sure that you're following the local laws. It's also um, important when you're writing these letters to only include minimally necessary clinical information. So these letters are often being seen by, by landlords and we might do our full evaluation and have that in our clinical notes that are kept in the patient's medical record. But the letter that we're writing should have more minimal information, including diagnosis, um, what that, um, you know, what that letter um, or what, what the impact that the emotional support animal will have um, and that you have a doctor or a clinician patient relationship. Um, but you don't need to include things like, you know, all of the social history, all of the different trauma that the patient has experienced. Those are things that can stay in your note and, and be kept private from the person's landlord. And it's good to do that in order to, you know, one, we want to only give people the information that they absolutely need to know, not extra. Um, and two, just to kind of limit any sort of discrimination that might occur from disclosing additional um, information about a patient's psychiatric history. And if we are recommending this as a treatment, as with any other treatment, it is good to re like check in with the patient every so often and reevaluate to see whether or not they are still having ongoing therapeutic benefits from this. Now, should you evaluate the pet? Um, so sometimes they do ask that you evaluate the animal and comment on the temperament and training. Um, if you are doing this, I, I would recommend getting collateral, collateral information from a veterinarian or, or someone who has the training to evaluate the pet. Um, in our resource document, one of the recommendations that we had that was specifically that as psychiatrists, we're not trained to assess an animal's temperament. And so evaluating an animal suitability as an ESA is really outside of our area of expertise. I would recommend that for all of you, unless you are, um, you do have specific training. For example, if you are a, you know, you are a veterinarian, for example, um, we don't have the training to evaluate the animal. And I think that opens us up to a lot of liability if we are saying that this animal behaves in a certain way when we don't know whether or not to actually say, say it is the case. So ethical considerations. So it is um, unethical and illegal to engage in disability fraud. So, um, and this might come up if our patient is asking us to write a letter to help allow their ESA to enter into a space where, um, that are just uh, not pet friendly venues and override pet restrictions. So the cases where um, the patient comes in and is really specific and says, hey, you can save me $200 if you write this letter and they've never talked to you about having any psychiatric illness before, um, that probably would go into the disability fraud category if you were to write one of those letters. 
and one reason we, another reason we want to be like really strict about this is there are a lot of uses for assistance animals and a lot of you know legitimate ones, and so um, when. Um, when there's overprescribing of emotional support animals, it does kind of impact the public's per perception of the disabled, and it kind of undermines like justice for patients who actually do require use of emotional support animals. Um, I know in patients that I work with who have psychiatric service animals, they do follow a lot of stigma when it when they you know bring their bring their animals around because. Um, People assume that they, you know, you know, they went to some illegitimate source or don't actually have a, a disability, and um, you know, kind of, uh, you know, kind of uh, got their letter through shady means. So other things to think about: it is permissible, even if your your patient does have a psychiatric disability, it is ethically permissible to decline to write that letter because at this point there's not enough evidence to support it, um, and. It's just really good to weigh the risks and benefits for that individual patient, given that, that limited evidence. So what's the liability? We'll go through some, some court cases here. So um, there have been some court cases that have occurred over these last several years surrounding use of emotional support animals. And um, there's not so many in the grand scheme of things, but these are ones that I highlighted that can kind of help with um, considerations when you're um, when you're going through the process of writing an emotional support animal letter. So this individual, um, Carla Black, so she was a licensed marriage and family therapist. Um, so she had a um, a website in which she um, would advertise being a, a specialist in ESA letters, which is a bit of a misnomer because there's not really a way to specialize in writing ESA letters because of the lack of trainings that are out there. Um, she also would do the letters um, via telehealth evaluations that typically lasted 10 to 60 minutes. Um, 10 minutes is very quick to do a disability evaluation. 60 minutes, it's, it's probably possible, but in that time, you probably should consider getting collateral information, requesting records, and whatnot. Um, the, other, the other aspect of this case was she did evaluations in states in which she was not licensed to practice. So um, I think a lot of us started to think more about this after COVID-19 hit and our patients kind of scattered around the US. Um, we're not, you know, if we're licensed in one state, we're not licensed in the state where a patient is, is practicing we're not or, or living we're not technically able to provide medical treatment in you know in that state unless it's more emergency medical treatment so same goes for emotional support animal letters if a patient is um, you know asking for a letter and they're living in arkansas for example and you're in ohio where i am you um you know, you might not be aware of those state and local laws. You also might not be licensed in that other state. And so you really need to consider that. So as a result of, you know, after this case, um, this therapist had her license revoked because she was practicing out of state and doing um, inadequate assessments. So um, in this case, Riverbrook versus Abimbola, Fabode, and other occupants. So. Um, this one's kind of interesting and unexpected. So um, Anne Vinay, so she's uh, a counselor. So she diagnosed this patient with differential illness under the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. 
Um, to be honest, I actually don't think I've heard of differential illness. It might be in the DSM, but um, it's not very specific at all. Um, so I would recommend if you are writing this letter, um, the diagnosis needs to be something that like, you know, kind of heard of before. It needs to be something, um, something more specific. Um, this is very vague and all-encompassing. Um, and she also didn't, in her letter, she didn't state what um, was the major life act activity that was impaired as a result of this differential illness. Um, at a um, district court hearing, the therapist also testified that she wrote the letter after only a brief phone call, which is probably not adequate to, to do the evaluation. But interestingly enough, the court did rule in favor of the therapist and a circuit court affirmed that ruling as well. Um, so this, this ruling did end up going in the favor of the therapist, even though I don't think she did an adequate assessment. Um, it's nice to know that it was in her favor, but also, you know, sitting back as a clinician, probably don't want to go to court in the first place. So it's good to try to follow these rules as much as possible. So this one um, is about kind of talking more about like landlord relationships. So um, it, with this case, um, and I'll try not to directly lead off the slide, read off the slide, it's a lot of information on there. But in this case, the patient had PTSD that was diagnosed by their psychiatrist. And the psychiatrist wrote several letters, uh, around three letters repeatedly to the landlord that specifically talked about the diagnosis, um, specifically talked about the um, the um, you know the role that an emotional support animal, specifically a dog, would have in mitigating that psychiatric disability, um, but the the landlord kept on having making additional requests for additional information. So the patient slash tenant they filed suit that the condominium association um, for reasonable accommodations violated federal and state laws. Um, and the court did find that the letters that the psychiatrist wrote were legitimate and included all the necessary information and that the landlord was requesting um, additional information that really exceeded what the landlord needed to know in the case. So this is another thing that's really good to know and, and kind of emphasizes the, you know, what the Fair Housing Act states. Um, you know, the landlord can request a, a brief letter with need, kind of that need to know brief information, but they cannot create unnecessary barriers in order to help give someone with a disability the necessary accommodations that they need. So special circumstances. So thinking about dog bites, um, an owner, um, including one for the ESA, they are liable if the dog causes damage, um, if their animal bites someone else or another animal. Um, and especially um, if the victim is legally on, um, on that owner's property. So that is something useful to, um, to um, you know, remind patients of when you're writing these letters. Most service animals, um, when it comes to dog bites, so most service animals wear a vest um, that warns bystanders not to bother the animal. Um, so if an animal injury occurs, it, one could argue that um, that um, the service animal isn't liable because they were um, because they were interrupted in their line of work, but really only when the um, owner of that service animal is able to argue that they were truly not able to like control the service animal in the moment because of that provocation. So there are a few exceptions to this dog bite rule for service animals, but um, in my opinion, it's a, it's still a little like of a gray area, but but good information to know. 
So recommendations, always practice with a valid license and only in states in which you're licensed to practice. So when it comes to telehealth practice, always be sure of where the patient is located or where they're gonna be using this letter. Um, in some states, you do they do require a patient uh, a patient clinician relationship for ESA letters, so that might be a strong consideration. Um, you may not want to write a letter for someone you've only just met, um, and you may prefer to write a letter for someone with whom you have an ongoing clinical relationship. Um, you should state the clinical justification um, for re the recommendation of the ESA. You should state what the major life activity is that's impaired um, by the patient's psychiatric disability and then offer the professional opinion that the ESA would alleviate that impairment. Good to warn the patient about potential for liability, especially surrounding dog bites, and um, be aware of you know, what standards of practice are in your area as well. So some additional resources. Here is the a AAPL, so that's the American Academy of Psychiatry and the Law. Um, they have a really good practice guideline that um, just talks about how to do a psychiatric disability assessment. And so this, this can be somewhat easy to find if you look it up and look through that to talk about like strategies for doing an adequate evaluation, reviewing the records, getting collateral information. And then this is the document I had mentioned before. It's available on psychiatry.org for free. You just go to the website and type in emotional support animals and look under documents and it, it'll pop up. So this goes into even more detail of what I talked about, talking about some of these different areas of you know, definitions, laws, um, clinical evidence, ethics, and liability. So I would definitely recommend having that on hand as well if you're considering writing one of these letters. The last document is the HEMA guide. So HEMA is the Higher Education Mental Health Alliance. It's a nonprofit organization that has about 10 or 11 um, allied organizations, um, including the American Psychiatric Association. Um, and all of the organizations who are a part of it have a vested interest in college mental health. So this guide, I know it's specific to campuses. It talks a lot about trends in animals on campus and what considerations um, a big organization should have in creating an animals policy. And even though it's specific to colleges and institutions of higher education, I think it is applicable and, and can be useful if your organization is trying to create a policy surrounding animals because it goes through different criteria that you should consider and different stakeholders you should get involved when trying to create that policy. So whether you work within the VA or within a hospital system or um, like a nursing home facility, it can also be a useful resource for you as well. Um, but yeah, so these are some of my, my references. Um, it's been really wonderful talking to you all about this. I hope that answered a lot of your questions and definitely would recommend looking at some of those other resources to, um, to get some more information. Thank you so much, Mira. That yeah. was super helpful because um, I know for when I get asked for an ESA, ESA letter, I often feel very uncomfortable and not sure exactly how to approach the patient. Mm -hmm. And also I don't wanna harm the doctor-patient relationship because yeah. a lot of times if I decline to write those letters, it can be um, quite contentious. So mm -hmm. um, what are some examples of some disabilities that an ESA could alleviate? Yeah, no, good question. So um, I think like, you know, some of the things that I think about the most are 
uh, the patient who has depression. So if I were writing that letter, I would say they have major depressive disorder, recurrent severe intensity, mm-hmm. and um, they're unable to get out of bed, have a lot of difficulty taking care of themselves, but the presence and the comfort of that emotional support animal gives them something to get out of bed for and mm-hmm. allows them to take care of that animal. Um, another example that I've seen before is um, with someone to mild to moderate autism spectrum disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, so as we know, these individuals a lot of times have difficulty with connecting with others, with with um, interpersonal like relating. Mm-hmm. Um, but an animal can kind of help a lot with that. Um, you know, if you're like walking your dog around the neighborhood, it's more likely that your neighbors will come up to you and like chat and pet your dog, which can help a lot if you're trying to meet people, um, as opposed to if you're walking around without an animal. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so those are some examples that come to mind. Okay, that's really helpful. Now, does it ever make sense for an ESA to be the only form of treatment for whatever is causing the disability? So in your example about the um, the patient with major depressive disorder who can't get out of bed, um, what if their ESA is the only thing helping them get out of bed? They're not on any medications or any psychotherapy or anything else. No, that's a, another really, really good question. So if the psychiatric disorder is rising to the level where it's disabling, I'd say that they do need to be in all sorts of other treatment. So for that patient, I would recommend that they're also taking medications, that they're also in psychotherapy. And if they're to the point where they're having trouble getting out of bed, I would be considering things like um, intensive outpatient programs and partial hospitalization programs. Mm-hmm. So. Um, you know, I suppose, you know, in my practice, you know, all of my patients are taking medications because mm-hmm. I'm seeing them. But if someone needs an emotional support animal, they also need other types of treatment as well. Okay, that's really helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, now, does an ESA always or originate from a patient's request? Or is that something, for example, you as a, psychiat- a psychiatrist would ever recommend to a patient uh, to help as part of their part- treatment plan? Yeah, you definitely can. I think, you know, I think we usually those requests come from the patient, but I bet part of the reason that's the case is because a lot of us have been unfamiliar or nervous about like, what is the criteria for writing these ESA letters? So we don't want to initiate it. Um, but now that you've watched this presentation, you know, like, Okay, if if a patient's sitting across from me and they definitely have a psychiatric disability that's impairing one or more major life activities, and I think uh, an animal could be beneficial, you can bring it up with a patient. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd also ask you to know, think about um, how how do we think the patient can take care of that animal as mm-hmm. well too. Mm-hmm. Um, it might be something useful to to consider before making that recommendation. Okay. Now, um, does the patient have to have a specific psychiatric diagnosis for an ESA to be written or appropriate? Yeah, I would recommend that, um, you know, because it would be that specific psychiatric diagnosis that's causing the disability. Mm -hmm. Um, So for in the example that I used where the patient was diagnosed with differential illness, Mm -hmm. that might be somewhere in the DSM, but that's very vague and Mm all-encompassing. So I would recommend... um, you know, one of those more common diagnoses that we've heard of that's actually specific, like major depressive disorder, schizophrenia, generalized anxiety disorder. Mm -hmm. Um, So yes, I would say they need a, um, and I wouldn't just write down anxiety, I would write down the specific like generalized anxiety disorder Mm -hmm. or social anxiety Mm -hmm. disorder. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, if one ESA is good, how about two or three? Is there any limit on how many ESAs a patient can have? And how do you determine if more than one is appropriate? I struggle with this so much. Um, 
and and partially because um, again, if a person if a if the patient qualifies for an ESA, I already have the question in my mind about whether or not that they, they can care for um, one animal, let alone two animals. Um, like if they're having trouble getting out of bed, are they able to care for an animal? Um, I. I, I do know of some patients, uh, they haven't gotten those letters from me, but they somehow have letters from more than one emotional support animal. Um, I don't know that there is a perfect answer to this, but mm -hmm. I, I, I kind of question the multiple emotional support animals <laughs> and, and how helpful that is. Sure. Because it ends up being such a financial burden and a stressor at times, uh -huh. too. So Okay. Now, um, I know you mentioned that the ESA could be really any species, and mm -hmm. you even mentioned the rat as an example, yeah. but it seems like for service animals, that must be a dog Correct. or mini horse. Yeah. So is there more evidence uh, uh, behind dogs or mini horses? Are they the superior species to help with mental health? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, no, I, you know, and actually I, I, I don't have the exact answer to this. I think, I think part of that is, um, with the trainings that are available, like you know, there's a lot of obedience type trainings for dogs that are available, mm -hmm. um, and um, and and what we have seen, we see that you know, dogs have the ability, and miniature horses have the ability to be trained to perform specific tasks. Um, but when it comes to emotional support animals, because the um, the intervention is more of that comfort, it really can be any species. Mm -hmm. um, now, I have heard, you know, different times where people say like, oh, my parrot will like grab my pill bottle and bring it to me. So that is technically a task that it's performing. But mm -hmm. according to the Americans with Disabilities Act, at this time, the only official service animals can be dogs, and in some cases, miniature horses. So, unfortunately, that person, that that poor parrot, wouldn't qualify as a service animal. <laughs> okay. um, and then the other thing to point out too is, ESAs can be any species, but like we talked about in New York City, they don't want it to, because of public health concerns. They don't want it to be like raccoons or rats or uh -huh. things like that too. So, so it's um, good to be aware of the public health laws in your area as got well. Got it. <laughs> Um, now, going back to kind of ethical concerns, um, I'm wondering how ESAs might impact social determinants of health. As you mentioned in your presentation, pet owners do report a myriad of health benefits and lower income individuals may be less likely to be able to afford a pet and so they're not getting these benefits. But an ESA could help skirt some of those fees which would give them that additional opportunity and, and we know they have higher rates of mental health diseases. So um, what would you say on that topic? That's, yeah, another really great question. I'd say, you know, um, whether or not the patient is coming to you with financial insecurity, mm -hmm. I would still use the same, start with the same evaluator. So mm -hmm. one, does this individual have a psychiatric diagnosis that rises to the level of the disability? And two, will an emotional support animal help as treatment like to mitigate that disability. Mm -hmm. That being said, I think you are correct. People who, um, you know, people have like, you know, various like, you know, social determinants of health. And if mm -hmm. you have food insecurity, if you have financial insecurity, if you've experienced trauma, you probably are more likely to um, meet criteria for a psychi psychiatric disability because mm -hmm. of those comorbidities. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't make the determination or be more lenient 
because someone has a certain background, mm -hmm. but in doing the evaluation, you might find that because of that background, they are, are more likely to meet that criteria. Okay, that's super helpful. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming yeah, on the program and Thanks for, for going me. through all of those uh, different considerations. That's super helpful. Um, and I'll definitely look at some of those resources. We're gonna finish up today's program with a final key point, Mira. Great, so if you were to take home you know, just a couple of things from this presentation, one, if you're gonna be writing letters of support for ESAs, be aware of the local and state laws and the federal laws, which are constantly evolving. And um, it is ethically permissible to decline to write these letters, even if your patient does have a psychiatric disability because of the um, paucity of evidence at this time. Thanks for joining us. For our audience, you can get your CME credit for watching on our website, ccme.osu.edu. Join us again next week for our COPD update with Drs. Jenny Wong and Kelsey Black. That's all for today. Thank you for tuning in and farewell until next time.